Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, November 30th, and this is your FT News Briefing. China is making moves to counter semiconductor sanctions. U.S. central bankers are divided over the size of their next interest rate move. Plus, our private equity correspondent, Kay Wiggins, stumbled upon a little-known financial product, and it looks awfully like one of the most infamous securities from the 2008 financial meltdown. A person just mentioned this to me, and I was like, sorry, what? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. China is trying to counter the impact of U.S. semiconductor sanctions. Beijing has set up a consortium of companies and research institutes in the hopes of designing its own high-performance computer chips. It's enlisted two of its top technology companies, Alibaba and Tencent. Beijing wants to reduce its dependence on the British chip design firm Arm. Arm is seen as vulnerable to any increase in U.S. sanctions targeting China because it supplies its designs to Chinese tech companies. Beijing's ultimate goal is to boost development of its own chip design market. The Federal Reserve's largely been united when it comes to raising rates, but a divide is emerging about how much to squeeze the economy to bring down inflation. Here's our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. She's been poring over the minutes from the Federal Reserve's latest meeting. So uh, it really is a question about how quickly inflation is going to moderate next year. Um, Now we've started to see some early signals um, that it has peaked. Price pressures are coming off the boil. And if you look at kind of the month over month rates, you're just seeing a little bit of a moderation in some sectors. For some officials, that's that's very welcome news. And that's helped to um, really kind of align with their thinking that uh, inflation is going to roll over substantially next year. Uh, but there's, you know, a clear cohort of officials who are still quite concerned about upward pressure um, on inflation, whether stemming from um, elevated, you know, wage growth and the historically tight labor market. So there seems to be this divide as to how much to kind of read into the current data. And that's something that economists expect to to continue well into next year. So, Colby, how does that divide on inflation translate into how to tackle inflation with monetary policy? So it's uh, the most important input, I think, in the policy decisions going forward, right? Because the Fed's goal here is to get inflation down to 2%. And if price pressures are rolling over, given what the Fed has already done to raise interest rates, as well as, you know, getting some help on the supply side with other forces as well. Um, that's going to mean that the Fed, you know, doesn't have to go as far in terms of further interest rate increases to reach its goal of 2% inflation. So uh, on the margins, you have some officials warning um, a bit more about the costs of over tightening monetary policy, meaning that they do too much and uh, raise rates in excess of what is required to get inflation down to 2%. But on the other hand, there are a number of officials that are still uh, quite concerned about the Fed underdoing it. That's really going to be the scope of the debate throughout 2023 is how to balance whether or not the Fed is appropriately calibrating policy. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor.
Remember collateralized debt obligations? They were one of the villains of the 2008 financial crisis. Investment banks bundled risky mortgage-backed securities and sold them as a safe investment. Regulators came down hard on CDOs after the financial crisis, but the idea didn't die. Financial firms like to bundle things and sell them as new investments. And the FT's Kay Wiggins found that the private equity industry has created something called a collateralized fund obligation. She joins me now to talk more about this little-known investment. Hi, Kay. Hi, Mark. So, Kay, this CFO, this collateralized fund obligation, is private equity's version of the CDO. How does it work? Essentially, this is the same type of structure as a collateralized debt obligation. So both of them are essentially like a box containing a bundle of different assets, which then issues kind of debt and equity to investors as a kind of financial security. So the difference between the two things is what's in the box. Got it. So in the CDO box, there were bundles of mortgages. What is in the CFO box? Inside the box is like stakes in lots of different private equity or private capital funds, right? And so each of those funds will itself own stakes in lots of different companies. Those companies, I mean, typically, if it's a company owned by a private equity firm, it will have a kind of junk grade credit rating itself at the kind of the company level. But there'll be lots and lots of different funds, in some cases run by lots of different private equity firms, all of which own a whole variety of different companies, some of which will be performing very well and some of which might be performing quite badly. One example is there's a CFO that we looked into for the piece and it happens to have exposure to this US hospital staffing company, which is called Envision Healthcare, which is owned by KKR. You know, Moody's has said that that company is at risk of bankruptcy. It's got the kind of lowest possible junk grade credit rating. But that has been bundled up with like more than 900 other companies into one of these. Now, what happens if one of the riskier companies in that bundle, in that CFO, like Envision, goes bankrupt? Well, the the proponents of this model would argue that if Envision goes bankrupt, in some ways, that's an illustration of the, the strength of the thing, because Envision is such a small part of this whole product. It's like one portfolio company of more than 900, and it's, you know, just one of many funds. And so... You know, if Envision goes bankrupt, even the fund that owns it um, can still generate good returns. Even then, that's only one of several funds that's been put in the bundle. To some extent, at an individual company level, there's this diversification. The issue is, what if we see a kind of generation of relatively poorly performing private equity funds, which is not hard to imagine at the moment? So you wrote in your story, Kay, that these bundles of companies rated as junk, high risk, loaded up with debt. Uh, Once funds with these companies are bundled together, they can get an A-plus rating from a top global rating firm, and it indicates that it's a super safe investment. How does that happen? Yeah, that's the question a lot of people have been asking. I mean, the reason that they would give is because they're looking not at the underlying companies, but at the performance of the funds or the likely performance of the funds. And so you can have a fund that owns lots of junk rated companies that itself then goes on to sell all of those companies for much more money than it bought them for. And it makes a load of money and it hands a lot of cash back to investors. How big is the market for this product, uh, these bundles of private equity funds? Do we know how many investors are buying them? Well, here's the thing. We basically have almost no way of knowing. So lots of these 
get issued privately and the people who who issue them are not required to make public like even the existence of them and one of them that we looked at which is run by um, a unit of the of Temasek which is a Singaporean state-backed investment firm they do offer this to like ordinary savers right retail investors so they have some disclosure of quite a lot of disclosure compared to the others of what they're doing but even then they don't tell the bondholders the ordinary savers which companies they're ultimately exposed to when somebody first told me about these things I kind of remember the moment they said it to me and I I sort of did a double take and I was like sorry you're gonna have to explain this to me again because I can't believe this is happening and no one's talking about it some of the biggest names in the private equity have done this. The likes of like Blackstone, KKR, Aries um, are doing this. And yet there is so little public disclosure about this that there's almost no way of building up a picture of the full size and scale of the market and how many people are exposed to these. Are regulators looking at CFOs? So these are private transactions, lots of the time done by institutions that are clusters, kind of like sophisticated investors. So a lot of the time, there's very little regulatory oversight of this at all. The, the one body that I spoke to that has had a look at this and is, is actively looking at this now is actually a US uh, insurance regulatory body. They've taken a look at this and are kind of concerned at the idea that you can package all of this stuff together, which is basically stay equity stakes, right? Holdings in, in companies. You can package it all together and sell it on as a debt instrument. And they're basically saying, hang on a minute, you know, in lots of cases, maybe this shouldn't be classed as debt. This is an equity investment and therefore a much riskier investment. Kay Wiggins is our private capital correspondent. Thank you, Kay. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.